Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome back Walid Khoury as my guest. Walid is the founder and general manager of Desalytics, a social impact investment vehicle helping to solve Africa's water challenges. If you missed Walid's first appearance on this podcast by season one, episode 10, he's probably the only real influencer in the water social sphere with about 28,000 followers on LinkedIn. But for some months now, he's even much more than that, having founded Desalytics and currently rolling it out across sub-Saharan Africa with the target to reach 20 countries by the end of 2022. In a minute, Walid will take us to Ghana, Zambia, Kenya, Nigeria or Cameroon and he'll explain why this is somehow a triple win for the local players, the water multinationals and him to dare to address a region that's often left behind. You'll see that he has his special recipes for that which enable him to achieve a kind of bootstrapped hypergrowth. What's that? Well, I won't spoil it. So let's jump into it together and remember, if you like what you hear, please share this episode with a couple of colleagues and friends. Please do it and I'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Walid. Welcome back to the show. Hello, Atwan. Thank you for hosting me again. It's a pleasure. You were a fantastic guest. I checked by season one, episode 10. That's been a while that we haven't had you on that microphone. And quite a lot of things happened. But right before jumping into that, we have traditions. So let's open with the postcard. And you're sending a postcard from Dubai. So what can you tell me about Dubai today? It's funny enough that last year also we had our call almost around the same time. So, but then back then it was completely challenging environment. You remember I was supposed to be in France next to you, and but I couldn't make it. So, this year is completely open. We just uh, started the Expo 2020 in Dubai, so it's very busy, you know. And I encourage you to visit anytime. Yeah, I've seen the videos of the Expo 2020 and I was like, oh, maybe not that there would be a bad time to go to Dubai, but that sounds like an even better time to go to Dubai. So why not? Uh, <laughs> Anytime, you're most welcome. Well, as I was teasing right now, last year I had the very largest social influencer in the water sphere on that microphone with you. That is still the case today, I guess, because I just checked you are very close to crossing the 27,000 follower bar, which places you like not even ahead of everybody else, but simply as the only one that can really claim the, this name of influencer. And I, I know we have we had discussed quite a lot about are you an influencer or not last time, but this time I'm receiving the CEO and uh, founder of Destalytics. And... Um, also, you're hosting some panels, which I guess I'll, I'll link to that with some very clever African minds. So I think that's our deep dive for today. What is Distalytics? What are you doing in, in Africa in general? And what are your targets? But let's start with, uh, with Distalytics. What is your elevator pitch to Distalytics? Yeah, so Distalytics relies on uh, partnerships and an innovative impact investing business model. 
to deliver a diverse portfolio of uh, water testing and also water treatment solutions to customers across sub-Saharan Africa. So your focus is really on, on the sub-Saharan part of, of Africa? Correct. And by design, we're focusing only on sub-Saharan Africa because it's behind in terms of infrastructure, but also in terms of needs and there are a lot of opportunities also to help. So that means that when you see sub-Saharan Africa, which is listed everywhere as one of the two places probably in the world where there's quite a lot to do with, uh, with South Asia, you're seeing that as an opportunity, not as a lost battle. How did you decide to target there? Definitely. You know, it's, it's interesting. And you made the comparison with Asia and, and Africa. So people look at Asia and Africa. And uh, the small nuance is that multinationals are more prone to go to Asia compared to Africa because they see it as easier to do business. So the sub-Saharan market is kind of left behind because it's too fragmented, it's too complicated for multinationals to manage. You know, And we can dive through later um, if you want on, on this topic. Well, actually, I'll quote you here because uh, I found that uh, in one of your marketing content that you were saying that the sub-Saharan Africa remains an underserved water market, what you just explained, lacking the presence of, of leading multinationals. So uh, it sounds like, like a common pattern. You teased it a bit now by saying that they see it as a most difficult environment to do business. But why is it so? I think there are a few reasons. So first, a lack of understanding, and, and it's driven by bias. I mean, we all grew up in what we... And, and we build our own thought process based on what we see. So think about it. When you all grew up, what you see in Africa, you see like famine, you will see wars, conflicts, instability. So in their mind, it's kind of a challenging environment. So this is one reason. Second part is the risks. And these are not perceived risks. These are real risks. So you have the currency fluctuation because you have multiple countries, multiple currencies. You have the political instability. And it's still in some places, a lot of instability. You have a commodities uh, risk. Some countries are relying on oil, like let's say Angola, Nigeria. Some countries are relying on mining, let's say Zambia, for example, and so on. So you have commodities risk also that can really impact uh, business. And also you have the payments risk, you know, because you have a lot of uh, defaults and so on. On top of that, you add the complexity. It's very fragmented. It's like the area I'm covering is 43 countries, you know, so imagine the, the complexity. So 43 countries, different languages, uh, giant landscape, lack of infrastructure should just to move from one point to another point, it takes uh, hours. And I think what has been happening for now, it's opportunistic. So companies will look at Africa based on the opportunity and not at, uh, with a long-term approach because of all these challenges. So that's why they, for example, if they compare, if they invest at counts, for example, our infrastructure in Asia compared to Africa, the returns will be faster in Asia. And especially if you are on stock market uh, company, you need to watch also what your investors are getting as a return. So that means everybody looks at that. Everybody sees all those hinders to doing business. And you're just saying that is an opportunity. What makes you see that as an opportunity? Definitely. It's, you have multiple drivers for the African continent. And they might not be immediate, but there are a lot of drivers. So you have first the urbanization. You know, we're starting first from a very low level of water infrastructure. You know, and then you have all the drivers that are changing the landscape. So you have first the urbanization. People are moving more to the cities. You have also the industrialization. So typically, Africa will import a lot of products from outside. It has been shifting completely towards investment in countries, in country manufacturing. You know, you see like the Dangote Group, for example, in Nigeria. It's now one of the biggest manufacturers across Africa. And also 
you're having more and more legislations and enforced legislations in terms of uh, water discharge, water limits, and so on, as well as the demographics uh, with the young people looking for jobs and and, uh, this creating a lot of uh, needs. And also, Africa is rising in terms of uh, GDP and prosperity. So the disposable income for people is becoming now even higher. So when you have a higher disposable income, you have more demands and you have more needs to, to address. So it is an opportunity. You were mentioning the lack of infrastructure. So when preparing for our discussion, I was looking at, at the numbers. What I found is that 42% of the population in that area is served with safely managed water. 23% is served with safely managed sanitation and 7% with at least secondary wastewater treatment. So if you look at that as an opportunity, there's a lot to do. If you look at that as the state where we are today and with the targets, you know, of the SDG 6 to reach clean water and sanitation for all by 2030, it sounds like we're lacking a bit behind. My question here is, you mentioned the regulations as a driver, and uh, we've been discussing quite a lot on that microphone how the other thing which might be missing is the funding. What will be the first to come and how can you trigger it to come a bit faster, if possible? It's an interesting point. You know, when we look at, at the market and uh, we've done a lot of strat- strategies thinking and uh, critical thinking on, on the African market earlier also in my career. So it's not just in at this analytics. So we kind of split the market into, so we have the donor funded projects, which are, as you mentioned, driven by UNDP, by World Bank, by Asian De- African Development Bank, all these type of funding donors. And you have also the industrial driven market. And these are completely two different approaches. So when you go to a industrialist, he wants to produce products. So he wants the best operations and process within his plant to be able to manufacture constantly a product that has good quality, whatever it is, if it's detergent, if it's cooking oil, any product, you know, it has to have the same level of quality. So these type of customers, the industries, we work with them on return uh, on investment model basis. So you help them by giving them the right solution, they improve productivity, they pay you for the money and they are funded. They have enough money to operate. The different one, which is the municipalities and government funded projects and so on, these are more complex and this takes longer time. But then you need to be present because while you're working through the funding, the donors are becoming more and more demanding in terms of what technologies you're implementing. Is it safe? Is it reliable? Can it work in the future or once they leave uh, the project, it will not be working anymore and so on and so on. So you have these two dynamics in terms of funding and each one of them you have to address it separately. You mentioned that you're targeting 43 countries or working. By the way, targeting or working, are you already active in 43 countries? No, 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 not yet. So what the region we've defined is 43 countries. So basically we took out the north and the south. North means Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, all of the north countries, and the south, which is South Africa, basically, and a couple of countries around it. And for a very simple reason, is that multinationals typically have gone to South Africa. They have opened uh, their entities. They have companies there. Same thing in North Africa. I'm talking about multinationals as suppliers, and they don't need us. You know, so they already have a footprint, and they don't need companies like us to help them fast-track growth. In the fragmented part of uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, this is where they are not, or they have added, added someone and then pulled out, came back again, pulled out, like in Kenya or Nigeria. But then they need somebody to come and help them across all Africa to, to scale up. So, so we're not yet in the 43 countries, and we're targeting just half of them, you know, 20 countries. <laughs> My question there is, you know, we often hear Sub-Saharan Africa. That is one thing which you could almost imagine as being 
one country or conglomerate of countries, whereas you are very rightly explaining right now that it's not one thing. It's 43 different countries and it's fragmented and very different from one country to another. So how, even if you target half of them, so 20 countries or 22 countries, how can you deal with this very high variability from one place to another? That's a very good question, uh, Antoine. When we started, we wanted to be local because, as you say, every country is different. From outside, you don't see it. I'll give you an example. Uh, and this across all Africa, not just Sub-Saharan Africa. I'll give you an example. So one time we had on a call one of our senior leaders asking us to leverage our service capabilities in Algeria to cover our clients in uh, Libya. You know, it's like 1,800 kilometers drive with two borders, customs, clearance. You know, you cannot do it. And there is no way you can do it. From outside, people look at Africa as, as its one, as you mentioned, Sub-Saharan Africa as its one. But then every single country is different. It's, it's like you're talking about, let's say, the Netherlands and France, you know, uh, Belgium and France. There are differences. Of course, there are similarities, but there are also differences. So that's why the fundamental of our business model is to go with local entrepreneurs in every country from the country. So, for example, in Zambia, we have Zambian partners. In Kenya, we have Kenyan partners and so on. And the idea is that we don't understand the local culture. You know, there's no way we can understand the local. By visiting just for a week business meetings, you don't get the local culture nuances. So that's why our model was based on having local partnerships, small subsidiaries operating in every single country. Let's talk about these fundamentals of your business model because I'm very curious here. So that means you have this kind of impact investing approach, if I got it right. So how do you open a country? What happens? Okay, I'll tell you how it started first. Okay, so then you'll understand where it's coming from. So basically, when we had our call last year, around this time, so I got a call from a young entrepreneur in Kenya. I used to work with him earlier in my previous company. And uh, he had started his business for the last two, three years. He was struggling. He wanted some coaching and so on. So we had a few sessions. And for me, it was obvious. He had a working capital issue and he had lack of access to suppliers. So basically, he has challenges to buy his materials at the right cost because he doesn't have direct relationship with suppliers and he doesn't have enough money to buy the materials and then sell them again. So basically, if he gets a PO, he has to wait for five months to execute the PO and it doesn't help you in terms of business. So then he asked me if I can fund his purchase orders. I told him, look, if you're going to work on the purchase order, I prefer to be more like a partner, real partner, and help you on many phases of the business, not just the funding part. And this is how it started. So a couple months later, I was like, okay, we're doing this for Kenya. Why don't we do it in other places? And if you do it in other places, you have more scale. So when you go back to a supplier, you tell him, look, I'm operating in 20 countries. I can help you in all these countries versus them going country by country to these small fragmented countries. And also for customers, like you have Coca-Cola operating in multiple countries in Africa. So you're coming now to them, telling them, look, we're here in multiple countries. We can help you. You don't have to go to different suppliers for every single need. So it's a kind of an ecosystem altogether that fits well. And when you add on it some of the tools that a small individual partner could not get on his own, like CRM system, but all the features of a CRM system, then you make a difference for them. So how, what is your relationship towards those people in the country? If I take the example of that guy in Kenya that you were mentioning, is it like a franchise where you, you, you give him some tools? Is it like a conglomerate where you are a bit coordinating all the activities or is it like a service that you're providing to those people? I don't have yet the answer, at least for now, you know, <laughs> because you know what's happening? Like we're, we're a mix of all what you just said. So we, 
I was talking to a private equity and hedge fund. So we are kind of a private equity. So we buy shares in small companies. We help them to grow, you know. We don't sell them, but we help them to grow. So this is the difference. But also we are like an incubator because basically we're finding a small business. We're helping them to scale up and grow uh, their business, you know. We're even testing a startup model. So for example, in Cameroon, we started our own entity. So I found a local entrepreneur and a local engineer, and we started the business together. So basically, it's a pure startup in Africa, in Cameroon. So we're testing all these business models, you know, but but the overall umbrella is like having in every country operations where our customers can find reliable and in-country inventory of products they need. And how do you approach the big brands? How do you sell them on the idea that you're going to develop them in the sub-Saharan Africa? You know, it's interesting that Having been in the industry for 20 years, as you know, you develop a lot of connections and, and networking opportunities. And uh, I'll give you an example of two of the brands we, we partnered with, you know, like LG Membranes. You know, LG is, is one of the best uh, in terms of price point, but also in terms of quality. They are very well adapted to the African market. And outside of Africa, they are winning most of the projects. So I got the LG brand because the gentleman who was managing Africa and Europe and South of Europe was part of my team long time ago, you know, like 15 years ago, I hired him in Algeria. So same thing for Purolite. Also, it was part of my team in the GE days, you know, and because of this culture and, and networking, they know you, they know what you can do for them. So you have more trust. But now that we're operating in multiple countries, it's becoming the opposite. So suppliers are coming to us saying, you know what, we've seen that you've, uh, we're working with uh, LG, with Purolite, with Hack and so on. So not your help. And why, why Desalytics? Because of what I see in Desalytics is desalination analytics. Is that you're centering around that? Or do you also do much broader thing? Or is my interpretation fully wrong? I think it's a mix of both. So I have an inclination towards desalination. And, and by desalination, people look into it as it's just taking seawater, putting energy and wasting energy and getting water. You know? So it's, it's not the case. I mean, desalination, you know, can be used for brackish water for industrial processes for many applications and this is where we are working mainly in Africa it's not for the potable side so I have this inclination towards uh, desalination and also desalination is industry or segment of the industry that's going to grow you know because efficiency is becoming more efficient coupled with renewables now renewables become cheaper so for me it's a growth segment that will really grow so I had this domain registered like almost 12 years ago so I said okay when I want to start my company I said you know what I'll use this one I have another one, which is interesting, watertreatment.com. But then, then <laughs> I said, I'll give it for something else later. So that's why how it started, you know. But And also, I like the name, you know. It's, it's, it's cool. You're mentioning the domain name. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. Because I was looking for your, your, your website, and uh, I just saw that I couldn't find one. And now I just tested to use this desalytics.com, and I see that it's redirecting to LinkedIn, which is kind of the same approach you already had as an influencer on LinkedIn. And I was wondering about your marketing approach there, because clearly you're going into content marketing and pushing that content marketing approach first. And uh, that's probably a question that would interest my partner in crime, uh, Buronotto. Are websites dead? So websites are not really dead because if you integrate them now with all the tools available uh, in terms of productivity tools and also content marketing and uh, redirecting uh, productivity tools, all of this, it, it's not yet dead. And we have a plan for the website. It's not yet up, but uh, we have a plan for it. So, so they are not yet dead. Okay, but what we're doing now, we've implemented something called the Decidetics Growth Engine. Okay, and it started as a commercial engine. Now it moved to a Decidetics Growth Engine. 
And our approach is that you need to have a fully integrated solution. So basically, we have tools that we implement across all these companies. So once we acquire a subsidiary, we implement tools with the logic that these tools will help us to grow the company 10 times in three years. And we are on track on in doing it, you know, so 10 times in three years. And these tools are around three components, so lead generation, funnel management, and also customer retention. So basically initiating leads, you know, nurturing the leads, closing the deals, and then keeping recurrent business coming and flowing through. So in terms of tools that have been implemented now, so it's almost like around 18 tools out of the three segments, we're now focusing a lot on the funnel management part because we don't want to be generating leads, content management generating leads to us, and then we don't know how to deal with the leads. You know, we don't know how to manage them, we don't know how to grow them, nurture them, and so on. So now we've deployed the CRM system across all the entities with a focus on funnel management. So basically teaching the team how to manage opportunities, weekly reviews, funnel shape, size, you know, all, all the terminologies of funnel management. Once this is fully established and we have the expertise and also the scale across 10 subsidiaries, then we will move to the content marketing part and the website. This is where we'll start the lead generation, either is it organic or, or through search engines or, you know, remarketing and so on. So this is where we'll go into this sector because we don't want to generate all the leads and then customers have a bad experience because we cannot manage them. But still talking of content marketing and, and funnel management at the very top of that funnel, when I saw you organizing those very interesting conferences with uh, some brilliant African minds, to me, that was obvious that you were working on the top of the funnel. Of course, it was informative and you, it wasn't only for lead generation, but still it places you as an expert in the African area, if that was still to demonstrate. But what was your background story around these conferences? Correct. You're absolutely spot on, uh, Antoine. In fact, those, those calls that we started, those webinars and bringing more young people from Africa to have this discussion is basically to drive awareness, as you mentioned. So we don't want to be going after customers, look, here, come by from us. You know, we want to have a kind of a journey where customers are part of our journey and they are growing with us. So we tackled uh, the talent in Africa. It's a big challenge for, for young African uh, People in the water space, it's a, it's a big challenge to find the right job. So we tackled the talent one. We tackled also the gender diversity in Africa. So gender diversity focused on Africa. And uh, the idea is to, to be close to customers. And also, as you mentioned, so it's part of the content marketing strategy. But it's a it's like the call. We had a call also with Bjorn, you know, on, on this topic. So, so it's kind of becoming relevant in the space. So people come to you later when they have any need. You are present in 10 countries right now, right? Yeah, almost. Almost. We're at seven now. Seven. Well, seven in one year. I mean, many, many, many companies are looking at you and probably asking how you do that. But my question here is, so you're active in seven countries. You're planning to have 10 in a very close future. And the target is to go to 2022, so half of sub-Saharan Africa. You're still running the water questions. So you are very active in, in, the, in the content approach on LinkedIn and other platforms. You are now organizing some conferences. How do you do all of that? How do you pack all of that in a day? It's challenging indeed, but uh, for the sidex, we've done it in a way that is more like a hands-off type of model approach. So basically every entity is kind of independent. So for example, uh, the team in Zambia is completely independent. They come to me when they have needs, when there is a challenge, but I'm not running the business day to day. You know, so I'm more providing strategic guidance and tools 
but you mentioned Cameroon, where it's a startup and where you are actively involved in a startup. And I think every startup builder knows that it's going to take probably 200% of your time. True. But again, we have a good young talent in Cameroon leading the business. You know, so what I'm doing is kind of putting the processes in place that can be replicable in every country. They can use them and pick and choose what works better for them and use them. So basically, I don't have to be myself very involved. But I agree with you because it doesn't stop here. Like what I'm doing, for example, I go to countries. I, I spend most of the first six months of the year in countries in Africa. So basically helping the team to meet customers, to bring in this level of expertise, to coach them in terms of selling, in terms of mentorship, in terms of hiring, in terms of uh, leading the business, having final reviews. So it takes a lot of time, as you say, definitely. It, it does take a lot of time. But, uh, you know, I've been in Matanashas for, for 20 years and, you know, the rigor and the calls. And, and, and so, so it's kind of a little bit easier. You mentioned your target to uh, multiply each of these subsidiaries by 10 in three years, which brings me to one of my favorite questions on that microphone, which is, is hypergrowth possible in the water industry? And I think that your target clearly answers with a yes. Is that true? I think it depends on the market, you know, the market and the industry. So we've picked a market that is kind of underserved, you know, with a lot of potential. So you have several growth dimensions there. It's not like just a organic growth model. So you have a lot of uh, growth dimensions. I think it's, it's the product portfolio or maybe is it through the industry served, you know, and even hiring more people and so on. So there are a lot of dimensions for us to be able to grow. So I agree with you, water industry is challenging. It's one of the most challenging segments to work in. And from outside, people think it's sexy, you know, water scarcity. So you've got a lot of business, you know, everybody needs you. But it's very competitive, very commoditized. So, so you have to be very selective on what you're targeting and, and how you approach it. You mentioned the growth engine that you're building with the different subsidiaries of, of Desalytics. What about the fuel of the engine? Do you, do you partner with capital investment with uh, investment funds to bring or to speed up the process? Or is it more of an organic growth where you, with the mother company, you, you can finance all the subsidiaries? So for now, it's still run as an organic uh, model because the idea is to test the model and, and show it works, you know, and we've had some successes now for the last uh, almost a year now. So we've had uh, successes and uh, Next year, we'll be going after, for, to scale up faster and quicker, we'll be going after uh, raising capital. But as of now, we're still sufficiently funded and uh, focusing on putting the building blocks uh, first, you know, to show that how it's really successful. So for, I'll give you an example, like the two subsidiaries you acquired early in the year. This year, we're doing around 3.5 times growth, you know, so you will not see this in, in developing in developed economies, you know, so, so that's why... The focus on this area unless you're twitter and or you're uber and you can burn a lot of money but uh, yeah 3.5 in an organic fashion is is incredible it's a good point you bring in like burning money and and uh, our business model is at, at having the entities profitable from day one if you look at all our entities with the exception of cameron which is a startup if you look at all the uh, other operations they are profitable they are not like uh, you know burning cash. They are maybe adding cash for inventory, but not losing money. So that means that you are somehow, not somehow, you are achieving hypergrowth by being profitable, so not burning money. It sounds to me like you're really onto something big from my very little position here. 
It is, Antoine. It, it's interesting because uh, for now we've looked, focused on small deals. You know, so the next step, once we were able to raise more capital, then we can scale it up in terms of, of size of the acquisitions. You know, because then it will become even more sizable. And it's not about becoming big. It's more about having enough scale to make an impact. Talking of that impact, you mentioned you have high targets for next year. What is on the table for next year? Opening more countries, keeping the growth pace in the existing countries? Well, next year is going to be very challenging because we've set up a lot of expectations and I'm sure we'll have to trim them down and try to find what's really makes sense. So, so for example, we have the plan of getting to the 20 countries, which is for sure one of our main, main targets. Okay, but also we have a project of uh, having a localization of our supply chain. So basically you have all products available but at, the, at the right point in time. So you can't burn a lot of uh, working uh, capital in terms of... Uh, also, we're, we're starting a R&D, small R&D system to just to check what are the products that we can either manufacture in country or even uh, white label. You know, because at the end of the day, if you want to make scale, you need to have also some products that you can control the supply chain uh, directly from end to end. So somewhere down the line, you have 20 countries open in the sub-Saharan region. You have your own product line and you can produce a part of this product line locally. That's the plan. Correct. So once you have the footprint, you have the local footprint in terms of commercial footprint across all these countries, then you have then scale will help you to be able to produce your own products. One more project we will be very busy with is that uh, the digital marketing part. You know, so as I mentioned, now we're building mainly our infrastructure, but next year we have to move to the digital marketing part because we will be present in multiple countries. Then it will make sense to to go after this either through inbound campaigns, you know, targeted inbound campaigns, real-time lead generation, content marketing, but really directed content marketing or uh, centralized and local campaigns, you know, and so on. So so next year, this will be more the phase where we go more on the digital side. And what will tell you that you've succeeded in maybe five or 10 years? What is the impact that you're looking and aiming for? I think... For me, the impact is mainly on, on job creation. You know, of course, the finances are, are part of it. But I mean, if you want to measure real tangible impact, it's basically job creation. What type of mix in your employees you have? So, for example, today you focus a lot on having working mothers and also gender diversity and so on. So, so the mix of the talent you, you have in your company, also job creation and also impact on, on customers. So, for me, one of the things I really like when I go to a customer, we have a deal with them, and then three months later, they order again from us. You know, So it means we're making an impact. We're not just being seen as a supplier. So so this type of, of uh, social impact investment opportunities that originally Decidics was built on. Well, it's an impressive thing you're building, and it's an impressive path you're on. I think we've made a good tour for that deep dive, unless I missed something big on Decidics. I don't think you must pick uh, anything big, you know, but uh, it's a good story and, and it's still, you know, like in progress. So maybe next year, if you have our call, we'll have something different to talk about, you know, because it's a learning in process uh, business model. And we didn't set it up as in casted in stone. Okay, this is what we want to achieve and this is where we will be. Because, you know, you said that Africa is diverse. We don't really know how it's going. So, so we're going to see how it goes and adjust with time. And that's a good thing about being a a small company is that you can, you're agile, you know, you can adjust anytime. I had a marketing teacher who used to say that the cost of being late 
exceeds the cost of being wrong. So basically, if you think a lot and then you don't do anything, then you'll be left behind, you know, just, and then the sentence was that, uh, throw it up in the air and fix it on the fly. So just launch it, you know, and then see, he's, he's a marketing teacher at, at Harvard, you know, so, so just launch it and then you see how we fix it. You know, don't worry about this part. I heard two different versions of that one. The first was uh, done is better than perfect, which I fully, fully subscribe to and which is exactly what you said. And the second was, uh, yeah, exactly. You, it's free flight and, uh, and then you're building the plane around it and you're hoping to have built the plane before you, you touch the ground because <laughs> if not, you crash. So <laughs> no, I, I was a good one. trying to keep the door open just because those days you're regularly announcing a new country which you opened a new thing and it was hey maybe i can have a scoop and you can just give me a new country you, you would be uh, releasing in the next two weeks or something like that so but okay i tried it <laughs> nigeria <laughs> oh, ho, ho. nigeria <laughs> yeah it, it was complicated so because we had to went down with a partner first and we were backtracked you know the Regulatory environment is quite complicated and you really need to navigate through the right partners. And uh, I'm happy that now we have the right partners and I'll be announcing later about the partnership, but it's being built as a really solid foundation. So then it can scale. Just for me to understand, when we say Nigeria, you know, sometimes to me, it sounds a bit like if we were saying a country like, like Europe, hey, Europe is a country, because that's from the magnitude of size, it's quite similar so does that mean that you're starting from Lagos, for instance, and then you're saying, okay, one day it will be so big that we can cover the country? Or could you even within a country have different subsidiaries of this analytics? Our potential partner, I mean, the partner we're signing with, is that they are already established in multiple cities and uh, they have the relationship with the industries we're covering and so on. So basically for them, it's kind of a expansion of what they currently do, but more on the trading side of consumables and, and water testing, water quality. Well, I'm hyped. So um, I'll watch the news to be sure to, to, <laughs> to get it when it's out. What if it's fine for you, I propose to switch to the rapid fire questions. Definitely. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So I tricked you because I sent you the rapid fire question, which I usually send for my first time guest. But as you already had that set, I have the second set of questions, which is for my returning guests. And my first question is, what is your favorite part of a project? So basically, in project, my favorite part is uh, the team you're working with, you know, just trying to build quickly the, the relationship with the team, or else it will be a completely flawed project. So trying to get to know all the people around you in this project on the personal level, not on the project side, you know, it will make a big difference. Is there something you're doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? It's a tough one. So, because I don't know what will be my job in the 10 years time, you know, but... but yeah, when I see how much it's changed in one year, uh, yeah, I guess so, it's hard to, to, to see what it would be in 10 years. I can tell you the opposite. What I'm doing today, I was not doing last year, for example, or the year before. Attending all these, you know, corporate calls and all the matrix environment and driving all through, through all this maze of large corporations. So this is what I'm doing today. I'm enjoying. I'm not doing anymore and I'm enjoying. Okay, I get it. You you changed the question, but your, your answer is cool. So I, I accept that one. What is the trend in our industry that you would like to see ending and disappearing forever? I think there is something that everybody talk about, water scarcity. You know, and, and they say like, okay, wars are going to happen because of water scarcity and so on and, and all these big talks. 
I don't think it's going to happen anytime. You know, I mean, we talk about war, but we haven't seen any major war done because of uh, water scarcity. So, so I'd like people to stop talking about it and talk more about the solutions and how we, as a human beings and also as a water industry, we managed to make water cheaper to produce than any other uh, arm or bomb, you know, or plane or anything needed to make, to make worse, you know. So the so technology has really evolved to a point that, that it's much cheaper to produce water than fight for it. Let me sidetrack you here. I shortly alluded to it earlier in our conversation about this SDG 6 not on track of happening by 2030. I think we are at progressing at one quarter of the speed we should. And you are at the hurt of it somehow because... As I mentioned, Sub-Saharan Africa is one of the places where we will definitely know if we make it or if we fail it. What is your feeling there? Do you see stars aligning? I think, yes. I, it, the challenge with the SD6 is that it's driven by the governments, you know, and we all know that public entities are slower than uh, private entities. Too. That means that they do the right thing or the bad thing, but they are slower because of the bureaucracy they have around. So... So we will get there. Maybe we'll be delayed, but we will get there. Because what's happening is that, you know, the Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs. So basically for human beings, first they need security, they want water, you know, shelter and so on. So these are basic needs. You're not talking about uh, something that uh, self-actualization on the top of the pyramid. So we're just basic on the basic needs. So, so it will happen because people are having, as we mentioned earlier, better disposable incomes and so on. So if the government doesn't address it, you will have people addressing it by, by themselves. And Today, the circular water is becoming more and more cheaper to implement. So basically, if you have your own village, you can easily install a recycling unit and you'll get more water out of it, you know, and so on. So, so the private sector will really take the lead. might take some time, but it will happen. I hope you're right. And I'm sure if someone has a clue about it, it's you. So I'm kind of happy about the... <laughs> thank you, you, thank you. It's a stretch, but thank you. <laughs> Last question. Um, can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? I'm the type of person who build a relationship based on trust. And then after we see what happens, you know, so we've had few of the deals we're trying, we could have been faster, gone faster, but some of these we've done did not work out, you know, and, uh, but there are always lessons learned and, and this is how you keep improving yourself and, and uh, fine tuning the business model. So you're saying that some deals didn't happen. Does that mean that you're somehow targeting the 43 countries and then seeing that probably 22 stick, like you send them on a wall and the, the one which stick on the wall are your countries or do you really target 22 countries? No, so, so we have a target approach on the countries, 20 countries in 2022. So we have the target approach on the countries. But what's happening is depending on how fast we're moving in some of the deals, it's triggering where we go first. So it's not that we said, okay, we want to be first in Kenya, then in Zambia, then in Uganda, and so on. So we said, okay, these are countries where we need to be in. And based on the maturity of the deals and the connections we can build and the opportunities we find, we'll go faster, and so on. But it doesn't mean that, that let's say, if there is an opportunity in a different country, we will not go. So I'll give you an example. Like Algeria is not part of our strategy. But at the same time, one of our suppliers is asking us to go to Algeria. So, so we are now in, in thinking like, shall we go there? Or shall we not go there? So is it a distraction or it's better? It's helping us to grow faster and, and have a big, bigger footprint in Africa. So these are the trade-offs we, we need to make. Well, I think that's the kind of trade-offs that we can assess next time you're on that microphone because... I like this habit of having you on a regular basis just because you, you're progressing at a pace which is 
absolutely unique from what I see from the, the water industry. So well lit, it was a renewed pleasure to have you on that microphone. And that microphone is open to you whenever you want. So thanks a lot. Thank you, Anton. And thank you. I, I really appreciate being here. And uh, it's amazing how, how your shows have evolved since last year. You know, it's like we, we talked a lot about me, but I mean, when I look at your shows, how they have evolved, the, the people you have invited and so on, I think... I'm really honored to be again back on the show and still have time, you know, to everyone, to include everyone. So so it's really a pleasure to be here and, and showcase at least what we're doing in Africa. And maybe people can have, hear this talk and, and help also. Well, really, thanks, but my pleasure. So, yeah, talk to you soon. Thanks, Anton. Take care. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.